Some people love debunking stuff. What is debunking? It's to expose that which is false or hollow, perhaps the falseness or hollowness of an idea or a myth or a belief. Even in science, uh, there's, there's some who love debunking theories of science because upon further research and further discoveries, former scientific theories have been proven false. So there's even websites that are called debunking scientific theories. Uh, with all the conspiracy stuff going around in the last few years among us in our society, the idea of being alert and uh, debunking conspiracy theories is a little more heightened on our radar. Uh, nevertheless, some people still follow for the conspiracy theories uh, in politics, in whatever else, whatever is part of our society and our life together. But there's a need to debunk stuff, not merely in science or politics or just society in general. Have you considered that there is a need to debunk things also in our spiritual lives if, the, if there are parts of our lives or our thinking that are actually hollow or even false. Uh, today, uh, we want to look at the reality that some people may need to look at the need to debunk certain parts of what they have held closely. Uh, debunking false confidence in our spiritual lives is the need that we will look at this morning as we are looking at how the Apostle Paul uh, is engaging in a need to debunk the false confidence of the religious or moral person. Would you open God's Word to the book of Romans? We'll be looking at chapter 2. And uh, actually, the, we're only going to read this morning from verse 1 to verse 16. Uh, the passage, initially I was going to go to chapter to verse 24, but in the course of working this week through this, through this passage, I thought, let me just stop at verse 16. Last week the sermon was an hour and nine minutes, and I thought, oh, let me not do that again <laughs> if the Lord can help me. Romans chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet to do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but, those, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you join me in asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing this morning? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for revealing to us your word that challenges us to consider if we have any false confidence in our hearts, in our minds. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts this morning and our minds to consider our own confidence in you. Purge what is hollow. Rebuild and replace it with your truth. We pray this for the glory of Christ. We pray it also for our edification. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We are in the first large section of the book of Romans. In the series through this book. A section that aims to show why all humanity is guilty before God and warranted to receive the wrath of God because all are under the reign of sin. This section, this large section, started in chapter 1, verse 18, the passage we looked at last week, and will end in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 20. Last week, we saw how the Apostle Paul explained why all humanity is filled with unrighteousness and therefore deserves God, God's wrath. Why is all humanity uh, filled with unrighteousness? And the answer Paul gave last week, that we saw last week, is because we all have rebelled against God. 
we have rejected God as God over us. We have exchanged his glory for the glory of this creation. And because of that, God gave us over to the corrupted desires of our hearts and to the corrupted minds. So both our wrong and corrupt affections and wrong and corrupt thinking are now ruling over us. Therefore, we all, all humanity is filled with unrighteousness. Therefore, the wrath of God is certain. Now, when people hear the message of the certainty of the wrath of God and the corruption of all humanity, some people in their minds may feel, wait, that's not me. I am better than that. I can do better. I am doing better. So there are some people who, when they hear the accusation against all humanity, the indictment against all humanity, some feel like, I'm not that bad. They might say that they are certainly not affirming the evil deeds of others, like chapter 1 closed on, the, on those who give approval to those who practice evil deeds. Some may feel like they are not among those who give approval to those who practice evil deeds. Quite the opposite, they might feel like, I am the one who condemns evil. I, I am actively seeking to help others fight evil. So, people who feel like they're better than others, when they hear this message, they feel like they have either an excuse or some way of escape routes. That they, the wrath of God is not going to be against them because they rise above the rest of humanity. This chapter, chapter 2, addresses those who feel that they are better than others. Those who feel that they are better than the rest of the world. And particularly, the Jewish people felt that. The Jews, because they thought and truly they did have God's law, and also because they were circumcised, which was a very visible reminder that they are part of God's covenant people, they felt they could tell what's wrong with the world. And they did. So, Paul, when he speaks about indicting the whole world, that they are under the wrath of God, here's one category in the people that he is writing to, a, a, a category of people who felt, oh, oh, we, we know how to get out of that. We're better. The Jewish people in particular had that impression. So the Apostle Paul feels the need to address them. And you don't have to be a Jew to understand the argument that Paul is going to make in this chapter. Are there people today who feel that they are moral enough or religious enough to escape 
the coming wrath of God. What does the gospel have to say to such people? And the aim of this text is to debunk the false confidence of the moral or the religious person. And how does the Apostle Paul do that? He does it in three moves in this text. And these three moves could be summarized in the following sentence. There's no excuse or escape route for disobedience because God's condemnation is impartial, universal, and thorough. There's no excuse or escape routes for disobedience because God's condemnation is impartial, universal, and thorough. Let's unpack this argument that Paul is making, and we're going to break it down in three points. And the first one is in verses 1 through 5. The first section of this text is in verses 1 through 5. There's no excuse or escape route for disobedience. In most of chapter 2, Paul addresses his audience by engaging in a dialogue with a particular kind of person. The self-confident but misguided religious man. And he addresses this person with the following beginning words. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Now, who is Paul speaking to? Who is the O man that Paul is speaking to? If we keep reading the text uh, beyond what we have read today, if we could keep looking verse 17, Paul will say, but if you call yourself a Jew... So the O man of verse 1 is the same person whom he's addressing in verse 17. He's a Jew. Now, some people think that Paul here is addressing the specific Jewish audience in the church of Rome. In contrast to chapter 1, where it seemed that he was addressing the, the, the rest of the world. But this distinction is a bit misguided. The change to OU in chapter 2 is not so much the specific audience in Rome, nor the Jewish Christian church so much, but rather the OU, the change to OU man, is, um, is a clue of a, of a literary device in ancient culture. Uh, authors, when they would try to make an argument or make a point, one of the literary devices was something that's called the diatribe. It was a dialogue that the author would have with an imaginary dialogue partner whom he's creating, having a dialogue with this imaginary partner for the sake of teaching the audience by listening, getting them to listen on this imaginary dialogue with this imaginary person. So Paul is not so much addressing here the Christians in the church of Rome. He is engaging in this dialogue with an imaginary person in order to communicate 
certain truths. And this imaginary person is clearly a Jewish dialogue partner. And in the dialogue that Paul has with this imaginary Jew, he wants all of us, whether they are a Jewish audience or just moral people or honestly even Christians, to listen to this dialogue and learn what God reveals about his judgment and about the false confidence that anyone can have. So even if you are not a Jewish person, you can hear this dialogue between Paul and this imaginary Jew and learn how to debunk, how to expose false confidence. Because the reality is it was not just the Jewish people who held false confidences about their spiritual lives. Any one of us can fall for those false confidences. So this morning, as we hear this dialogue that the Apostle Paul is, is engaging into with this imaginary Jewish person, let's hear the first claim he's making. The first claim he's making is there is no excuse or escape route for disobedience. What characterizes a person whom Paul is addressing in this chapter? He's a man who thinks he has an excuse. He's a man who thinks he has a route, he has established how to ignore or how to escape uh, God's judgment. Some people think they can ignore it. And somehow, God's judgment will not affect them simply because they feel they are in control and they can ignore God's judgment. Other people think they can ignore or escape God's judgment because they are better than those who are exposed to God's judgment. And that's the person that Paul is addressing here in this chapter. Verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The person addressed in chapter, one, in chapter 2, verse 1, is different in some ways than the person Paul addressed in chapter 1, verse 32. The person in chapter 1, verse 32, the last verse of chapter 1, was a person who was boasting in the evil of others. The person in chapter 2, verse 1, is a person who judges the evil of others. And you might look at this distinction and say, oh, I get it. I know who's going to escape God's judgment. It's the one who judges evil. But here, the person who is judging the evil of others thinks and feels that they are safe. But the surprising part in this verse is that judging the sin of others does not keep the people away from doing it themselves. Friends, have you considered that our attitude towards the evil of others will not excuse us 
from God's condemnation? Oh, it is so much easier to see the sin of others than to see our own sin. It's so much easier to see the sin of others than to turn away from our sin. Do you find assurance in your attitude against the sin of others? Do you find some level of comfort in the fact that you hate the sin of others? That you hate the sin of society? Well, friends, hating the sin of others does not mean that you hate your own sin or that you are turning away from it yourself. The irony that the Apostle Paul brings in this chapter, in this introduction, is that such people want to take the seat of God in judging the sin of others, but they don't realize that God's judgment falls rightly on them as well when they continue to practice evil themselves. There is no excuse. There is no excuse or escape for disobedience. Even if you feel like you are in the position to judge it against others. Our judgment of the sin of others will not be an excuse or an escape route from God's condemnation. This is restated in verses 2 and 3. Listen again. Paul says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, how did this person develop such a false or hollow confidence? Verse 4 gives us the answer. Paul says in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? A misguided understanding of God's kindness and patience is the culprit for developing this false confidence, thinking that it's sufficient to judge the sin of others and yet not turn away from it ourselves. People assume that God's goodness and kindness means that He will never act against us. This is how some people think of God's kindness. But it's a mistaken view. Other people think that God's kindness uh, in this, is, is that which God has shown us already in Christ Jesus. And therefore, because we have put our faith in Jesus, we have made a decision for Jesus when we were young, or we have had some experience of grace when we were earlier in our lives, that somehow, therefore, we no longer have to worry and bother with sin in our lives. And therefore, whenever sin shows up in our lives, 
we just hang on to God's kindness and mercy and grace. And this also is a mistaken view. In both examples, uh, in both scenarios, the person is presumptuous. The person feels entitled to God's kindness. But they miss the purpose of God's kindness. They miss the purpose of God's patience with us. It is to lead us. God's patience and kindness with us is to lead us on the path to repentance from the sins we are committing. Not to lead us to the path of being okay with our sin. To to such a falsely assured person, Paul says in verse 5, because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Wow, the same person who presumes on the kindness and goodness and the rich mercy of God, in verse 4, is the same person whose heart is also hard and impenitent. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. Grace that does not lead to repentance leads to judgment. Grace that does not lead to repentance leads to judgment. Friends, to presume upon the kindness of God in such a way that you don't see your need for repentance on an ongoing basis leads you to actually increase the wrath of God upon you on the day of God's wrath. The Jews fell for this trap. They became complacent in God's covenant promises, yet failing to turn away from their sins. So it led them to become complacent and self-assured. Friends, it is not enough to criticize the evil of this world. It's not enough to be angry at the sin of others around you. It is not enough to feel angry at the corruption or inconsistency of other Christians around you. It's not enough even to claim that you've experienced God's grace in the past. All of these can happen. And yet, without experiencing a true change in our hearts, because when God changes our hearts, the change is inevitable. The evidence of the change cannot be hidden. Our deeds are a great window into whether or not a true heart change has taken place. A man with a hard and impenitent heart has no problem criticizing the evil of others, but will not turn from it himself. A man with a hard and impenitent heart will have no problem presuming on God's kindness, but he will not turn in that presumption. He will not turn away from his sin. 
This is a scary part. In this part of scripture that a hard and an unrepentant heart doesn't have a problem criticizing others for their sins. And a hard and impenitent heart doesn't have a problem being falsely confident in God's kindness and goodness. Friends, this is scary. So, from this first section of this text, Paul is telling us of two escape routes that will not be adequate. Judging the sin of others will not be an escape route. And presuming on God's kindness will not be an escape route. Now, why will these not be adequate escape routes? In the next two sections, Paul will tell us something about God and his ways with us that will show us why these two escape routes are not adequate. Point number two, we're looking at the second section of this text. Because God's condemnation is impartial. Because God's condemnation is impartial. We see this in verses 6 through 11. There's no excuse or escape route for disobedience because God's condemnation is impartial. Look at how verse 6 starts. He will render to each one according to his works. I wonder why the Apostle Paul didn't write that God will render to each one according to his faith. I mean, we are in the book of Romans after all. Why not according to one's faith? Why according to one's works? It is very true, and this book, the book of Romans in particular, makes such a big deal that our justification is by faith. But this book also tells us that our judgment is by works. The reason why God's judgment is by our works is not somehow to, it's not like a bait and switch thing. Oh, I drew you in with faith, but I'm really judging you by my works. No, 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 that's not what's going on here with the Lord. He's justifying us by faith and will judge us on the last day by works to prove to us that he is impartial in his judgment to prove to us that his judgment is true and impartial. And our works are the visible evidence of true saving faith. What's at stake here is the judgment of God being impartial. Our works reveal whether our faith 
has been a saving faith or just a hollow false assurance. Dick Lucas, a wonderful expositor in England, said the following, in the Bible, works are a necessary outcome of our faith now. And works are a necessary evidence of our faith on the last day. So it's not that we are saved by faith plus works. But we are saved by a faith that never comes alone. A faith that produces works. Again, he said, works are the necessary outcome of a saving faith. And works are a necessary evidence of a saving faith. You know that I like Spurgeon. Mrs. Spurgeon once was approached uh, in the streets by a drunkard man. And uh, the drunk man said to Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Spurgeon said, no. Why should I? And Spurgeon, and the drunk man said, because I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon said, you must be one of mine because you're not one of the Lord's. The point is, we can profess conversion. We can profess some decision we have made. But when the Lord saves us, He saves us. He rescues us. He changes us. The change He brings is lasting. Now, that doesn't mean that we become perfect right away. That doesn't mean that we will not struggle with battling sin. But my dear friends, sin has been broken. Its power, its reign over us has been broken when God truly saves us. Again, Pastor Dick Lucas said beautifully, the only hallmark of a saving faith is a new life. This is why God will judge us on the last day, not based on our faith, but based on our works. So in verses 7 and 3, we see a contrast between a Christian and a non-Christian. And the contrast is given to us from the perspective of what God will see and do on the last day. To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The Christian, according to these verses, is someone who seeks glory, honor, and immortality. These were the attributes described about God in chapter 1. That the whole world has sought to suppress and rebel against and exchange 
exchange the glory of God, exchange the honor of God, suppress the immortality of God. But here in these verses, the Christian is the person who no longer suppresses or exchanges God's glory, honor, or immortality, but instead seeks it. And those who seek after him will receive eternal life. But the opposite category of people are those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Salvation changes what we seek in life. For these, for this latter category, their destiny will be wrath and fury. Oh, friends, a faith that does not change you does not save you. Because a faith that changes our hearts will change our affections and will change our thinking and will change our orientation in life. It will seek God's glory. It will seek God's honor. It will seek the immortality that God alone can give. Above our self-seeking, our deeds are evidence of saving faith. On, last, on that last day. So this section ends with a warning that there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now if you're a Jew and you heard these words you would be shocked. And here's why. Because the Jewish people, because on the, on the count of their covenant expectation and circumcision being the visible sign of their covenant belonging, the Jews felt they were in a different category than the rest of the world because they already assumed they are protected. They had the law. They had circumcision. So Paul says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first. Really? Yes. You do evil? You persist in it? It doesn't matter what you are, Jewish person or not. It doesn't matter what your identity is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your past privileges are. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being. And the aim of this warning here is to extend the condemnation of God, not merely to the Gentile world, but to every human being, even to those who thought that they are better than the rest of the world. Oh, friends, this contrast between the person who does evil and the person who does good is not to bring us back to somehow a, a salvation by works, but to show us that God's judgment will be fair and impartial. God will not execute his judgment on that last day in a partial way, cutting some people some slack. He will not cut anyone any slack.
even if a Jewish person would think they have the right or the entitlement to claim it. And friends, if the Jewish people could not have any entitlement, that God would not cut them any slack, be assured of this, he will not cut anyone any slack. It may be shocking for us as Christians to hear this as well. We might say, well, we are Christians. We're better than the Jews. No, we're not. On this issue, it doesn't matter if you claim to be a Christian. It doesn't matter if you claim that you've had some experience with God when you were young. At the end of the day, there is no excuse or escape route for disobedience because God's condemnation is impartial. Point number three, the other reason, the last reason we see in this passage why there's no excuse or escape route is because God's condemnation will be universal and thorough. And we see this in verses 12 through 16. If the Jews expected God to cut them some slack because they were Jews, guess who else expected God to cut them some slack? The Gentiles. And you say, what, what reason do they have? For expecting God to cut them some slack. Well, they could have said, and some of them may have, well, we didn't have God's written law. Yeah, God should judge the Jews because God gave them the law. They had very clear knowledge of what God expected, but we didn't have the law. So in verses 12 through 16, Paul addresses that escape route and shows why that escape route will also not work. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, there is no slack cut for anyone. Not having the Bible, not knowing God's revealed word will not be an escape route for the Gentiles. Sin brings death, whether or not God's written law was available to us. Say, well, why? How so? Paul will address that in verses 14 and 15. But before he addresses the Gentiles, he wants to tell the Jews one more thing. It's as if he says, oh, Jew, this imaginary Jewish partner that he's dialoguing with. He says, let me just tell you one more thing. In verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, merely a hearer of the law, hearing and having access to God's law, will not make you right with God. The responsibility is on responding to the truth with obedience. The obedience that believes in God. The obedience that trusts that what God says is true. Now, this sounds very similar with what James says in his book. But here, Paul doesn't spend as much time, so much with a Jew at this point, but he wants to move on to the Gentile, to his escape route. In verse 14 and 15, Paul says, 
they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When would the Gentiles show that God, the works of the law are written on their hearts? When they actually do what God says, even though they don't have access to God's law. Now, what does it mean when it says that God wrote his laws on the hearts of the Gentiles? We should not assume or expect to understand by this that somehow the Gentiles are actually more privileged than the Jews, as if the Gentiles actually have God's law written on their hearts. That is a promise of the new covenant. The Jews didn't have that. They had the, the law written on stone. But the Gentiles had the works of the law written on their hearts. That means that which the law intended to communicate or to affect in people, God wrote some of that on the hearts of the Gentiles. This has taken place in the way God rules over the conscience of every human being. The fact that people have an intent, intuitive sense of right or wrong, an intuitive sense of morality, is evidence that God has written the works of the law on the hearts of all humanity. Again, this is not the writing of the entire law of God on people's hearts. That's a promise only for the new covenant. But God has written enough on the hearts of all humanity to give them a sense of what the law was working towards, a sense of what is right and wrong. So this means that God gives all humanity not only the evidence of natural revelation, as we saw last week in chapter 1, but also God gives the evidence of conscience, an evidence that there is a right or wrong. Who puts that category in people's minds? Who has implanted that in the conscience of people? The answer is God has. As one Bible teacher put it, as with natural revelation, generally, this knowledge, which is part of the conscience, does not lead to salvation. Verse 15 means not that some Gentiles might actually be saved at the judgment, but that each Gentile will have some thoughts that accuse him and others that excuse him. But the conscience that God gives all humanity is enough to bring evidence of rebelling against God. This text ends with a description of what will happen on that day of judgment. Look at verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, the dialogue and the battle and the rebellion that happens in our consciences because God has given enough of his works of the law in the conscience of every human being. The rebellion that happens at the level of our minds 
God knows, God sees, and God will judge. And on that day of judgment, our evil deeds, even for those who have not had access to God's written law, the evidence will be the evidence of their deeds because in their minds and consciences they have rebelled against the works of the law that God has written on every human mind. And God's judgment on that last day will be both universal and thorough because God can see and x-ray our minds. He knows that we have rebelled against what God has itched in our minds and our consciences. So, the rebellion people engaged in may not have been visible to us, but before God's eyes, it is all seen. There is no secret that can escape the judgment of God. The rebellion people engage in may not be visible. It may not have been public. But that will not be an escape route because God's judgment on that day will be universal and thorough. Oh, friends, because God judges the secrets of our minds, He knows when we suppress His truth in our conscience. So for God to judge the secrets of men is a devastating news especially for those who try to hide behind excuses. Both natural revelation and God's work through our conscience renders all humanity to be without an excuse. Oh, friends, this is why there is no excuse, and this is why there will be no escape route from God's condemnation, because God's judgment is not only impartial, God's judgment is also universal and thorough. No one will be able to escape it. Nothing will be left unnoticed. And this, dear friends, is part of the gospel message. Paul says, on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. Think about how this text encourages us not to be embarrassed to talk about the judgment of God. Not to be embarrassed and afraid to talk in our gospel presentation about the judgment of God. The facet of the gospel that this text highlights is the, facets, the facet of God's judgment against sin. That's impartial, it's universal, it's thorough. That's why we need something more than our own efforts or good works to make us right with God. Religion or morality, our sense of goodness, our sense of being better than others will not be adequate escape routes on that last day. So when you, if you're a believer and are consciously seeking to share the gospel with someone else, are you making the effort to make this part of the gospel clear? That God will judge everyone 
that his judgment is impartial, that his judgment is universal, that his judgment is thorough. Consider putting this part in the gospel when you share it. At some point, some of the reason, one of the reasons why people may reject Jesus and not appreciate the good news of his salvation is because they've never understood the terrible news of our condemnation. We go so quickly to the good news that there's no reason for someone to understand why they need the good news of the gospel because they've never been brought to grasp, grasp and understand how terrible of a condition all of us are. Friends, if you are one of these who may have lived with a self-confidence that is hollow, don't live with the expectation, the false expectation that somehow because of your Christian background, because of your upbringing, or because of a past experience, that you are ready to meet the Lord. Is a gospel you embrace by faith producing change in your life now? I uh, remember years ago uh, with a group of men in our church, we decided to go for some training on... Uh, on chainsaw training so that we could be eligible to serve in disaster relief teams uh, who would go and be deployed where dis when disaster hits and help with chainsaw train uh, cutting trees that fell down and uh, helping with that. And I remember the training of the chainsaw had a part that was that stuck to my mind. In training to know how to cut trees well, before you engage in cutting the tree down, you must, absolutely must, establish and be clear what your escape route will be once you cut the tree down. Because once you cut the tree down, there's about five to ten seconds for that tree to land down. And you must be very clear that your escape route is away from that tree. And thinking about an escape route after you cut the tree, is way too late to decide that. But the point, though, is when you establish that escape route, be sure it is not anywhere in the way of the tree. You must escape away from the falling of the tree. A wonderful lesson. The caution was be sure that your escape route will actually work. That it's adequate. Because an inadequate escape route will not save you from the danger of that falling tree. Oh, dear friends, here in this text, the Apostle Paul is wanting to alert us of false escape routes. For that day of judgment. So that we would not be caught by surprise when the day of judgment and God's condemnation will fall on us instead of falling away from us. Consider the reality that judging the sin of others is not going to be a sufficient escape route. Counting on God's goodness and kindness will not be a sufficient escape route. At the end of the day, 
if our saving faith in Jesus does not produce a change of life, it is possible that the faith that we have placed or had may have been hollow, presumptuous, and simply false and unsaving. Because God's judgment on all unrighteousness is impartial and thorough, no one will escape by their own moral or religious self-confidence. But only as we put our trust in Jesus, because that alone brings real and lasting change in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, for the grace you have given to us in your word to address us, to call our attention to the reality that some may hold on to, hold com to, to false confidences. Father, we pray that the light of your word, the light of Jesus Christ may shine brightly on us to point to us our need of you. Help us by your spirit Help us by your truth. Help us by the gospel to trust us, trust in you entirely. And for all our confidence to be not in ourselves, but in you and you alone. It is the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.